So when we sit, you know the basic form by now. But there's something that we do that um, I want to talk a little bit about the reason for. We have this little guy. Okay. And uh, meaning the what's sometimes called the cosmic <coughs> mudra. And it's not arbitrary by a long shot. It's um, actually what it does when we talk about Zen in the Japanese context is it focuses the mind on the hara. The hara being this energetic area that is just below our navel. And um, the reason for this is we tend to associate the mind, not everyone, but a lot of us, energetically with the space around the eyes and um, with thinking. Eyes and thinking. So there's this thinking mind behind the eyes. And the thinking mind behind the eyes is really easily distractible. It's got distractible. It's got this neck, right? I can kind of shoot it wherever I want. And that actually has an effect. The embodied nature of believing the mind is there has an effect on the way we move and experience the world. So by asking the mind to drop into the hara, which we might not be able to find right away. So we put this little locator beacon in this mudra right there. And so Zen teachers will often say, drop the mind into the mudra. Or drop the mind into the palms of your hands. So there's associating the mind with thinking and eyes. And there's associating the mind with breathing and hara. We're moving from thinking and eyes to breathing and hara. This moves much slower. If my mind is here and I turn my mind towards something, I have to turn my whole body toward it. I can't flip my neck in a second <coughs> and then flip it to something else. The Buddha's actually talked about a lot this way. He's talked about turning his attention towards something like an elephant because an elephant can't turn its neck. It has to turn its entire body toward a thing. And so the Buddha was often appreciated as someone who turned his attention the way an elephant turns its attention. We turn our attention the way elephants turn their attention. The entire body. In fact, the entire being of who we are. So when we're sitting Zazen, we're not giving up thoughts in some kind of active way where we're thinking through the giving up thoughts. If you've noticed, it doesn't work real well. Heads have dropped. Um, but we can drop the head 
into the hara. And we can do everything from that place. So when we're cleaning, we clean from the hara. When we're chanting, we chant from the hara. When we move our hands, we move our hands from the hara. We're moving from that space and that rootedness. And the effect that that has is um, fairly dramatic because then suddenly the heart is supported. When this is where the mind is, the heart has no support. There's nothing under it because everything under the heart is now being totally ignored. We have no strength in the body that supports the heart. And so we can't tolerate heartbreak in those situations. Actually, living out the Bodhisattva vow is very difficult without the strength of the body, of the lower body. And I don't mean go run six times, although that's good too. But I mean the strength of the energetic body. And so, um, once the mind is in the hara and moving at that speed, then the heart breaks for the world has support. Then the question of whether we can tolerate the heartbreak for all beings is not a question anymore. We clearly can. Because unlike the I-thinking mind, which thinks it's limitless and is profoundly limited, the hara-breathing mind knows where it's located and has immense capacity. Because it's not rooted in thought, it's rooted in life. It is life. This is where we feel the center of life in us. This is not just Japanese, this is Chinese, this is Indian, this is, you know, this is old. At some point, especially Western European culture, we have really privileged this tiny little space. And it has its consequences. It's also very convenient if you don't want to feel the pain you're causing the world. If you want to stop feeling the damage and pain you're causing the world, live from the neck up. And you will stop feeling it. If you drop here, you will feel the pain of the world. But we will also have the capacity to feel that and respond to it. So when sitting zazen, I would encourage that reminder. I would encourage that we sit in the way we do. They're beautiful. Everybody's very upright here, and thank you for sitting. And then to remind the mind that thinks it's here to drop. This is small mind's location. This is big mind's location. This mind is living the mutuality that Laura talked about yesterday. It is always living mutuality. There isn't even under any, there's no comprehension of a world where that wouldn't be the case when we're in the body in that way. Such a world makes no sense. So. And then this brings 
me to think about the notion of shin because somebody, uh, Jeffrey asked well, how, what I think would be the best definition or how to translate it. And um, I was thinking about that last night. And it crossed my mind, while heart, and certainly it's rooted in the organ, I think the issue for me around just heart is that we have our own um, way of thinking about heart, which is very emotional, and there's, there's a lot of, there's a whole history of our own poetics around heart. So what came to me is the heart of life, but then life seems like we're so used to talking about my life and all of these things. And what struck me was Shin as the heart of our livingness. It's the heart of everything that is alive as us. And um, the closest thing we can point to in the feeling of that is here. If we were going to give that a location in the body, really the whole of the body is that location. But if we were going to give it a center point, we would move from Hara. And we would move from Hara as Shin, as the heart of everything that is alive about us. And much of what um, we're learning in this, at least what I've learned over the years, is noticing every time I cut myself off. Every time I move too fast, especially move too fast. Every time I'm in thinking mind, somebody asked me about thinking mind, and um, and what if I enjoy thinking mind? Like really enjoy it. It's not um, stressful for me, which I really enjoy thinking mind. But this is not a process of cutting off any aspect of ourselves but just noticing the aspects of ourselves that are in the way of experiencing that aliveness or that understands itself as the whole of everything. If thinking mind thinks it's the whole of everything, which it can, it can have that habit, then we're not experiencing ourselves as a full being. And most of our full being is quiet and relational, is comfortable with itself. It's no different from the tree. We're not any different from the trees, you know, in terms of the life force that goes through us. And they're not neurotic. It's amazing. <coughs> At all. Trees just are there. And um, when we think of that character of mutuality being I and tree, witness and the object of the witness in relationship to each other, the witnessing is happening in both directions. The one feeling, receiving the gift of being witnessed is happening in both directions. This is what Zazen is for us, is giving ourselves the gift of witness at the same time as we are the receivers of the gift of witness. There is no giver and receiver and gift in that relationship. We are allowing ourselves witness. We are allowing ourselves to be witnessed 
as life, which this does not do so well. This actually comes up with thousands of schemes to not be witnessed. So the mind of the great sage of India, the heart of the livingness of the great sage of India is mutually and intimately transmitted. Mutually and intimately transmitted between East and West, India and China, China and Japan, Japan and America, between Suzuki Roshi and Tia, between Tia and us, between all of us and each other. Like we talked about yesterday, this is telling us what it is to receive the Dharma, to live mutuality and live intimacy. This is what it is to receive the Dharma. There is no way to receive the Dharma that isn't intimate and mutual. I can't take the Dharma from something. I can't give the Dharma to something. The Dharma simply is. And so in recognizing my mutuality with everything in the world and being intimate with that mutuality, I receive the Dharma. But not because of anything I did, except being intimate and mutual. So the minute we're not feeling mutual because we're a separate person getting stuff, then it disappears. And we're usually here. We're usually not moving from here. We're not usually moving from elephant body when we're separate and grabbing things. That's appropriately called monkey mind. You know? So I was thinking about, <laughs> I was thinking about um, in India, some, sometimes I remember in the north of India, people were not as worried about um, people breaking into their cars as monkeys breaking into their cars. <laughs> and I saw it happen. Monkeys get in little gangs and break into people's cars. So don't leave things into your cars that monkeys want, you know. But um, it's brilliant, really. And um, well, human faculties may be sharp or dull. So that's when we have the most difficult time with intimacy and mutuality is when we're assessing all our faculties. When we're talking about who we think we are. When there isn't any capacity to see, um, to feel from Hara, to live from Hara, to live from Shin. Instead, there is an object that we've constructed that deserves our critique. Even if everything we say about ourselves is true, every bit of it, it still does not matter. It is still completely irrelevant. If we're not as smart as we'd like to be, so what? You didn't choose it. If we're not as athletic as we'd like to be, if we're not as this as we'd like to be, whatever, you didn't choose it. You didn't choose the karma. I didn't choose the karma that unfolded as me. 
I have something to say about it now. I can look at it and shift my habits. But to treat one's inheritance as something to be disdained, we'll never get out from under that rock. That cannot be won. It can only be given up. whether sharp or dull there are no northern or southern ancestors we don't necessarily know why we choose the path we choose why in the world I am in I mean I was an anarchist and an atheist and now I am a Zen priest I don't know <laughs> how that happened I liked being an anarchist and an atheist that was fun <laughs> and miserable um, <laughs> And I'm here, so I don't know how that happened. You know, and we don't know why. I don't think we know. We can tell stories about why, because of our characteristics, why we choose to be on this particular path, and we can write all. We don't have any idea. And this is great because we can just relax. Like the minute we actually accept the mystery of what's going on, we can completely give up. Really, totally give up. and admit what's already happening, which is the current of life is carrying us. I don't know about you, but I could not have imagined the life I'm living 20 years ago. At all. It wasn't in the plans. Because the plans meant nothing then, and they mean pretty much nothing now. But to show up from that space that is at the heart of living, one doesn't really need plans. Because we're just coming to what's, we're having a mutual relationship with what's happening in an upright, clear, generous, thoughtful way. This is what's happening, it needs to be addressed. This is what hap what's happening, it needs to be addressed. I have ideas of what who I should be. That doesn't seem to be happening right now, so this is what I'm going to do instead. Not that the ideas of who we are to be are necessarily bad. Sometimes they're actually helpful. But if they're not the thing that's happening, then they're kind of, they should kind of be treated as their appropriate position, which is a little on the side. And when there's time to get to them, then you get to them. I don't want to be a Zen student, I want to be something else. Well, you're a Zen student. Because <laughs> you're here. <laughs> so you can want to be something else, but you're actually a Zen student at the moment. spiritual source shines clear in the light, the branching streams flow on in the dark. We talked about this. We don't know what's going on. And yet we grasp anyway, knowing it's delusion. 
And this next line, according with sameness is still not enlightenment. According with, um, thank you, according with sameness is still not enlightenment, this line. Um, I really appreciate when people do that, thank you. Um, this idea that even when we're harmonious, that's still not it. Even when we're living from Hara, even when we're living from the heart of life, even when we're moving in that way completely, that's still not total liberation. Because if we think that is it, if we think that that harmony <coughs> is it, we will grasp onto that harmony. And that harmony will become a false blueprint for other things. If we believe for a minute that the harmony we experience in our lives is somehow not still total mystery, which we can trick ourselves and say, I feel really good right now. I'm no longer living mystery. I figured it out. <laughs> I got one up on mystery. Wasn't that big of an opponent after all. Then we're done. I was talking with somebody else about you can't know mystery. But you can't. You can't know mystery. We can't know mystery. But we can live it. We can actually live mystery. You can live from mystery. And this is another reason I think it is so experience is that it's so critical to drop into this place of the body because this is living mystery all the time all the time it's not trying this aspect of where we are it's not trying to figure out what it needs to do next it's just in relationship and the the unfortunate thing about not living from there is that it doesn't know it, uh, over time we've ignored it for so well what happens is we get so wrapped and you've probably felt this we get so wrapped up in the stories of our head that this poor aspect of who we are starts responding to that as if it's what's really going on so there's all this fear and everything going on down here because it thinks it's living in a world of total chaos and misery all the time when you're walking through a forest so it can't even access the forest because the whole front line of dukkha is between it and the forest. And so it's trapped in this mind. But if this can settle and clear out, then this can start to relate, it can live out its birthright, which is to be in relationship with life, to be life, and to settle and be clear. else to say than again thank you for sitting 
let your bodies teach you. Let the forest teach you. Let the silence teach you. And when we battle against them, see if we can just, you can let the battle teach you. Actually, the battle will teach you the most. The battle will teach us the most. And eventually, over years and years and years, we start to realize that the battle is getting us nowhere but battle. It doesn't resolve. What's the word? Agony. Agony is from the Greek term agon, which is a battle without an end. It's agony. And the only way to resolve agony is to give it up. There's no way to beat it. So one way I would suggest giving it up, when you feel yourself up here, drop. Just drop. Breathe. Rest in the breath. Let the breath rest in the belly. Let the conscious mind drop into the mudra and the heart. The heart will be supported. This will take time. We are, if, you, if it's not already something that you have a felt, um, it, it can even be quite frustrating. If there's not a, um, a felt sense of it already, you might not even be able to find that or know what it feels like. And that's fine. So use the mudra. over time this just becomes a little kid playing in a corner of an infinite mind thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the brooklyn zen center our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive for more information on supporting brooklyn zen center please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org